now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. It is an honor to be with you today, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, Grant just shared a lot there at the end. This has been a heavy week. It's been a very, very heavy week. It's weeks like this, though, we just sang about. I am so thankful that we have a living hope. We have a living hope. And can I just just look into the future? Have you ever just thought about that moment when you're going to have the opportunity to take off your crown and lay it at the feet of Jesus? I cannot wait for that day. Sean and Krista, Bradley, Caitlin, little Nash. If y'all are watching right now, I just want to say we love you so much. And we're going to walk with you and we're going to journey with you. And I know that this church loves well because they are in the midst of a massive storm. But one thing I know about that family is I know where they run in the midst of a storm, and that is to Jesus. And so uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Tommy, and I have the privilege of being one of your pastors here at Charity. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend. This is a weekend every year that we, we reflect on and we honor men and women who selflessly were willing to give it all who were willing to sacrifice everything for our freedoms. And Jesus spoke to this. Jesus said in John 15, verse 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Let me tell you, there have been a lot of men and women who have selflessly laid down their life so that we could enjoy freedoms in America that people all over the world do not get to enjoy. It's very frustrating to me that so many people take the freedoms that we have in this country completely for granted. Some people in this country are doing their best to do away with the freedoms that people gave their life for in this country. For so many people, I think this weekend, this is just a time where they get an extra day off of work, where they light up the grill, throw some back, and literally do not even give two thoughts about what it is that we're celebrating. And so many people are away on vacation. That's cool. But I, I hope and challenge every single person here today that regardless of what you're going to do, that you will take some time to just reflect on and give honor to those who have sacrificed it all. Yeah. And I will say this, and I'm proud to be an American. As great as our freedoms are here in this country, they pale in comparison to the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ. And so today, what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes and I want to talk about the greatest sacrifice ever given, and it was on a cross, and it was by our Savior. He has a name, and his name is Jesus. And so today, I want to take a few minutes, and I want to look at the cross, at the crucifixion. 
Because I believe that the cross of Christ is the most important message that I could ever preach. And I believe the cross of Christ is the most important message that all of us could ever hear. And this is why the Apostle Paul, who was an amazing man, the greatest missionary to ever live, wrote almost half of what we know of as the New Testament. This is why he said to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he said, but we preach Christ crucified. And that was his message in every single town that he went to. In every single letter that he wrote, he preached Christ crucified. So we're going to look today at the crucifixion. Jesus told us to remember the crucifixion. And I pray that it's something that we remember every single day, not just at Easter, not just on Good Friday, but over the last couple of weeks, I've been studying the crucifixion, everything leading up to it. And I'm telling you, it has wrecked me at the kind of love that Jesus has for you and me. As horrible as the crucifixion was, and you know, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Romans might have come along and perfected crucifixion, but they didn't invent it. Now, they kind of treated it like a sport, and, and they would constantly tweak things, and they would hang people different ways. But crucifixion and the torture that was involved began long before the actual cross. They would uh, scourge people, which would be a, a public humiliation, a public beating, a public mockery of the criminal. And this is exactly what they did to Jesus. They beat him. They spit in his face. They took thorns that could have been three, four, five inches long and wove together a crown just to shove it on his head and said, you consider yourself a king? They, they reached up and ripped the beard out of his face just to humili humiliate him and shame him. And then they began the scourging process where they would take the criminal's hand and they would reach it out and they would tie it to a post so that the back was completely exposed and stretched out. And they had a weapon that's referred to as the cat of nine tails. Think about a whip, only it has several strands coming off of it. And at the end of the whip would be balls with hooks at the end of it made out of metal or bone. And they would proceed to whip the criminal's back and in the process, that hook would dig into the back and literally rip the flesh right off the person's back. This is what they did to Jesus. The scourging process a lot of times was referred to as the half death. And the reason for that is many people did not survive just that. They didn't even make it to the cross. It would expose bone. It would expose vital organs. It said it was not uncommon to see a rib just come flying out. One medical journal said that it would be the equivalent of being shot in the back with a shotgun at a relatively close distance. This is what they did to Jesus. And they were just getting started. After they did that to him, they took the crossbar of the cross, the part that his arms would be on, and they shoved this on his back. And this was not polished wood that you would make furniture out of. Think in your mind like a railroad tie. 
This, this piece of wood would have been rugged, full of splinters, full of other men's tears and blood because they would reuse that bar. And they shoved it on his exposed, shredded back. It probably weighed anywhere from 75 to 120 pounds and made him carry his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. At that point, they laid him down and they took nails, again, think railroad nails, six to eight inches of steel or metal, and they drove them into the base of his hands, his wrist, and through his feet, and then raised the cross. Crucifixion itself is not what people would die from. They would die from asphyxiation, from suffocating on their own blood. Because the only way somebody being crucified could catch a breath would be to, for a moment, overcome the pain they were enduring and lift themselves up by the nails, catch a breath, and then fall right back down. This is what they did to Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but they, they beat him so bad that he was unrecognizable as a human being. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 52, he said, his appearance was so marred, it was beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Meaning that even if you knew Jesus personally and you walked into the room and saw him, you would not recognize him. With that in mind, I want us to look at the seven statements that Jesus made while on the cross. Even on the cross, Jesus was teaching and modeling for us how we're supposed to live our lives. He just finished that process. Can you imagine the mindset, the pain that he was in? I'll tell you, it, he was in excruciating pain. Something that's fascinating to me is the word excruciating is literally a word that was invented to describe the cross because they had no word that described what somebody went through and excruciating in Latin literally means from the cross. So he was in excruciating pain. And the very first words that Jesus utters is found in Luke 23, verse 34. He looks out and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. It's hard to fathom that being the first words out of his mouth. They just did this to him. And his first thing to do is to pray and intercede for the very ones who did that to him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They clearly don't know who they're doing this to. Forgive them. Jesus is modeling for us the very thing that he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, him loving and praying for those people is taking what you and I would consider our enemies to a whole different level, I believe. And man, how opposite is that from the world that we live in today? We live in the midst of cancel culture. Somebody offends us, you're canceled. Somebody does something stupid with their company, I hope you go out of business. We're quick to cancel people. And I, there's a cliche that I love. It's old cliche, but it's worth repeating. And that is that forgiven people should be in the business of forgiving people. If you have received 
the grace and the mercy and the love and forgiveness that Christ offers, then you should live a lifestyle of forgiveness. But I'm shocked at how often I have people come up to me and say, I I can't forgive that person for what they did to me. Or I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. And, And I get what you're saying, but man, I'm so glad that Christ's forgiveness for us is not like that. Because it says that when he forgives our sins, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. First Corinthians chapter of love says that love keeps no record of wrong. That's the kind of love and forgiveness Jesus is displaying on the cross and that he's telling us to display as well. Here's the beautiful thing about that. Jesus' first words are a prayer where he's interceding for the very people that, he, that did this to him And here's the cool thing. His prayer was answered. If you keep reading into the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, the day of Pentecost, so just go forward a little over a month, 50 days, the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching his guts out to thousands of people, many of which were the very people responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Because Peter looked at him and said, you crucified him. You crucified him. I just wonder if he thought, I remember you're the one that drove the nails through his hands. You're the one that threw that wood on his back. Oh yeah, I remember you're the one who shoved that crown on his head. You crucified him. And scripture says that it cut them to the heart. It cut them to the heart, the message that they heard. And they asked Peter, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. Here's the beautiful thing. It says over 3,000 people, some of which were the very ones who did this to Jesus, gave their life to Christ that day. His prayer was answered. But you don't even have to go forward to Pentecost because that prayer was about to get answered that day to somebody that was in way closer proximity because on either side of Jesus were two thieves. And we see that Jesus' prayer was answered in his second statement. In Luke 23, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? If so, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And then the thief, looking at Jesus, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. But here's the cool thing. Something happened to that thief because Matthew's gospel records the crucifixion and the interaction between Jesus and the thieves as well. And Matthew tells us just a little bit beforehand Both of the thieves were mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Both of them. But one of those thieves, their spiritual eyes were open to Jesus, that he is who he says he is. And I just wonder, this is speculation, conjecture, but I just wonder what was it that opened up that thief's uh, spiritual eyes? And I just wonder if it was Jesus' first statement that on the cross he said, Father, forgive them. And I just wonder if that thief thought, who does that? 
but who, whatever it was, his spiritual eyes were open. And, and I believe that this thief, which by the way, these weren't petty thieves, right? You didn't get crucified for like petty theft. These were uh, revolutionaries. They were like insurrectionists. They wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, some texts say they were robbers. And so you can think there was probably violent crime associated with what they did. These were bad, hardened criminals. But it shows a lot of faith when he looks at Jesus and says, remember me in your kingdom. He knew Jesus wasn't coming off that cross. He certainly knew he wasn't coming off that cross. And I also think this is a beautiful example that our salvation is in faith alone. Because that thief had no opportunity to work out his faith. And he didn't have an opportunity to go to church a bunch of different weeks in a row and get a, a gold star. He didn't have an opportunity to do good deeds in the community or even contribute and tithe to the church. He never had an opportunity to teach a Sunday school. And yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. This is what I consider the ultimate deathbed conversion. And when you think about this thief, you think, man, talk about being at the right place at the right time, literally right next to the person who had the opportunity to do something about it. And I've had, I consider it a privilege over the years of ministry to be involved in multiple deathbed conversions where somebody is at literally the end of their life, matter of hours, days, or weeks before they enter into eternity. I've heard multiple people say, he would never love somebody like me. And they hear the gospel, and for the very first time, they step from death to life, and it is a beautiful thing. Where they never had a chance to work out their faith, but yet that promise is true for them too. But what I would say to you today is if you have never taken that step of faith from death to life, do not wait. Make today the day of salvation because we're not promised tomorrow. We don't know when our last breath is going to be. Do something about it today because every one of us has a choice to make. Deny Jesus and who he says he is or respond like the thief and say, remember me. So the first two statements, we see Jesus praying and asking and interceding, asking for forgiveness. And the second one, we see him offering salvation. And Jesus is not done amazing. His third statement from the cross, we see him making plans for the future and showing an unbelievable kind of love. His third statement found in John 19, starting in verse 26, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which was John, the one writing this, gave himself the nickname, I'm the one that Jesus loves. When he saw them standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's a beautiful picture of love. And as a parent, I cannot even begin to fathom what, was, what Mary was going through in that moment. She, she's looking at her oldest son, who is unrecognizable as a human, even though she knew this day was coming, it was prophesied to her that you're giving birth to the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he's gonna give his life as a ransom for many. She knew this day was coming, but can you imagine the horror in that moment, seeing one of your kids? And can we be honest? Jesus was probably her favorite. 
I know his parents were not supposed to have favorites, but the man was literally perfect, right? Can you imagine being one of Jesus' siblings and what that must have been like? Every single day, your parents coming up and being like, can you not just be more like Jesus? Like, no, he's perfect. It would drive me crazy. I, and I just imagine this scene, this picture. Maybe if your family is like our family, at Christmas, it always seems that there's, there's one gift that multiple people get that's the same gift. And you can always tell it's going to be the same gift because the same size box, same wrapping paper, and everybody's told to open it at the exact same time, right? And so you know you're going to get the same thing. And then it's a race to see who can open it the fastest to see what it is. I can just imagine Jesus and his siblings, they were sitting there one Christmas and, and Mary and Joseph pass out the gifts and they're like, oh, we're all getting the same thing. And they, they race and they open it up and it's a bracelet. This says WWJD. <laughs> I mean, it would be hard to be Jesus' siblings. But I love the fact that in that moment, Jesus is in excruciating pain. He's in pure agony and anguish. And he looks down and he thinks about his mom. It's such a beautiful picture of how he loves. He looks to John, his best friend. And he says, you know, mom's going to need a roof over her head. John, mom's going to need food on the table. She's going to need a place to stay. She's going to need somebody to care for her. And John, I'm entrusting you with that. And it says from that day forward, she went with John. And, and uh, theologians all agree that, that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, had probably passed away at this point because he's not mentioned anywhere in this text. Also, none of Jesus' siblings would have been followers of Jesus at that point. Right? Marty asked a great question last week. What would it take for your sibling to convince you that he was the Messiah. The same thing it would take for Jesus' siblings, and that is the resurrection, which had not happened yet. So Jesus needed to entrust Mary to a follower of his. And so he entrusts her to John, which is also what we talked about last week. James 127, this is pure religion that you take care of the orphans and the widows. Jesus is doing that very thing in his dying moments. But now things are about to turn and get a whole lot worse for Jesus. Because the physical pain that he went through, he knew he was going to go through that. But, but it was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he was about to go through. In Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the most excruciating part of the entire experience for Jesus. He said, my God, my God. And I want you to think about for the first time in all of eternity, the perfect communion between the father and the son had been broken. Jesus always referred to the father as father. He prayed, my father. He referred to him as the father. He doesn't refer to him as father right here because that relationship was broken. He said, my God, he was under the wrath of God for you and for me. For the first time in eternity, that relationship was broken. 
Theologians call this the great exchange, and I think it's a beautiful picture. That was the moment that God turned his back on Jesus so that he will never have to turn his back on us. That was the moment he was pouring out his wrath. And what's interesting is if the verse right before that says that for three hours, the world went completely dark. From 12 to three o'clock, it's not dark in the middle of the day. From noon to three o'clock, the world went completely dark. That's because God was pouring out his judgment on mankind. And then he just unleashed it all on Jesus. And he treated Jesus the way that you and I should be treated. So that he could, he treated, mm. if that doesn't cut you to your core, We ought to think about the crucifixion, the cross of Christ every single day. Just it's an unthinkable, unimaginable kind of love that he displayed for us. And as I was studying about the crucifixion and the cross, I was reading an article and I came across a true story that I want to read to you now, just to illustrate this. So there was a pastor who was holding a Sunday evening service. And that particular evening, he asked an elderly man to come to the pulpit and to tell his story to the congregation. This old man went to the pulpit and started right into his story. He said a father, a son, and a friend of his son were sailing off the Pacific coast when a storm quickly approached, blocking any attempt to get back to shore. The waves were so high that even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep the boat upright, and all three were swept into the ocean. At that point, there were two teenage boys sitting in the front row, They hadn't been listening up to that point. Suddenly, they woke up and leaned forward. They wanted to hear what happened next. The old man continued grabbing a rescue line. The father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy would he throw the other end of the line? He had only seconds to make the decision. The father knew that his son was a Christian. He also knew that his son's friend wasn't. The agony of the decision could not be matched by the torrent of the waves. And so the father yelled out, I love you, son. And he threw the line to his son's friend. By the time that he pulled his friend back into the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beyond the raging swells into the black of night, and his body was never recovered. At this point, these two teenagers in the front were sitting up, right, drinking in every word, just waiting for the next words to come out of the old man's mouth. He continued, this father knew that his son would step into eternity with Jesus. And he also could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into eternity without Jesus. Therefore, he sacrificed his son. The old man concluded, how great is the love of God that he should do the same for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross in his place. With that, the old man ended his little talk and he sat back down. After the service was over, these two boys rushed to talk to the old guy. They said, we like your story. It was powerful, but it just doesn't seem very realistic. It's hard for us to believe that a father would give up his son's life in hopes that his other kid would become a Christian. The old man said, you have a point. The story is not very realistic. But I'm standing here today to tell you that that story gives me just a small glimpse of what it must have been like for God to give up his son for me. He said, you see, I was the son's friend. 
So Jesus endured the full wrath from the Father. Then we see his fifth statement found in John 19. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and this was to fulfill scripture, I thirst. I thirst. There's a couple things going on here. First of all, this is a great picture of the hypostatic union of Christ. He is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And in his omniscience, he knew that there was only one more prophecy that needed to be fulfilled from the cross that was prophesied in Psalm 69, where it says that he will receive sour wine. And so Jesus, knowing that if he said, I thirst, they would have responded by giving him something to drink. And if you were here for Good Friday, Marty went into depth how bad that situation was, where the Roman soldier reached down and grabbed a sponge out of his satch satchel that he carried with him. And he dipped it in the sour wine. And we think, oh, that's good. He gave it. No. What that sponge was to a Roman soldier is something they carried around with them and they would dip into the sour wine. And that's what they would use to clean themselves after going to the bathroom. So he literally takes used toilet paper and puts it to the mouth, to the lips of our Savior. And so every word that Jesus spoke from that point on would have had that on his mouth. But also, he's 100% man. And at this point, Jesus would have been an absolute 100% dehydration. After the trauma that his body went through, every cell in his body would have been screaming out for something to drink. He's 100% man. And so I just want to challenge you, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever is causing you grief, Jesus can understand. And this is why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.15, referring to Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can relate and understand what you're going through whatever it is that you're going through. But here comes the good part, because Jesus had been in agony up to this point. But his sixth statement's found in John 19.30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Those three words, it is finished, was really one word, to tell a stop. This was Jesus's battle cry of victory. His shout of triumph. The very reason he had come to this earth had been accomplished, the redemption of mankind. It's a word that would have been used all the time in that culture, to tell a If you had a loan with the bank and you paid the final payment and paid off the loan, the banker would stamp the paper, to tell a It's paid in full. If you were building something, building a house for somebody and you finished, you'd say, to tell time to move in. Jesus yelled out, to tell the, the sin payment had been paid in full. It was his battle cry. And I just think about that moment, what that must have been like for Satan and his demons. For those three hours when he was under the wrath of God, man, they thought they had won. They thought they had won. They thought they were victorious. But in that moment, they realized that the script had been flipped. And this was the crushing blow 
to Satan. It said that his heel will be bruised and it was bruised on the cross. So he, he got hurt, but he crushed the enemy's head. And they realized that they were powerless. And friends, that is good news for you and me. This happened on the cross. The cross is good news for you and me. But it was not good news for those on it back then. Now we wear them around our neck as necklace. They're pretty up in the baptistry. But my prayer is it will always be a reminder to you daily of how much Jesus loves you and me. I love how Pastor Greg Lloyd puts it. He says, it was at the cross that God made that God and man were reconciled. It was at the cross that the Lord's righteous demands were met. It was at the cross that what was lost in the garden was regained again. It was at the cross that a crippling and decisive blow was dealt to Satan and his demon powers. It was at the cross where our salvation was purchased. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. And then Jesus' final words from the cross, Luke 23, 46, it says, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, that's very important, with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands. Notice how he referred to him again? Relationships restored. Father, relationship has been restored. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And I just want to be really clear, Jesus voluntarily chose to surrender his life. It was not taken. It was not taken. He said this himself in John 10, 18, and he said, referring to this, no one takes it from me, referring to his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And he did take it up again because we have a living hope Three days later, Jesus triumphantly walked out of the tomb, proving he is who he said he is, and he can do all he said he would do. But I love it said in a loud voice. You see, the fact that Jesus still had the strength to actually shout that loudly lets you know he was not knocking on death's door. And the fact that it only took Jesus a matter of hours to die on the cross was way sooner than it took most people. It, it would take sometimes up to several days for somebody to die. That's just a glimpse that he willingly laid down his life for you and me. And I, I will forever be amazed that even on the cross, Jesus was teaching and modeling for you and me how we're supposed to live our lives. That in Jesus's worst moments, the result of that is the best moments for you and me. So how will you respond today to this message that you've heard? Will you be like the one thief who denies him? Or will you be like the other who says, remember me? Maybe you, man, you said, remember me years and years ago. Then I pray that today is a great reminder for the love of Christ for you as an individual. But maybe you've never taken that step of faith because, man, you're just ashamed. You're just riddled with shame at the things you've done. Let me tell you something. Jesus took your shame to the cross. And maybe today you've bought into the lie that you aren't worthy of being loved. 
culture just screams, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. Let me tell you something. Don't you ever think you're not worthy. Jesus thought you were so worthy, he went to the cross to prove your worth. So if there's something holding you back, I just encourage you, man, come to the altar. And this next song is we celebrate that word to tell us die. It is finished. Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, for being the perfect and the permanent sacrifice, restoring the opportunity to have a perfect relationship with a holy God. We have direct access. The veil has been torn. God, we can have communion with you starting right now and for all of eternity. And so God, let us sing this as a battle cry. It is finished. God, I pray that today is a day of salvation. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.